0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? You How do, do they dead come back, mother? Didn't you? You What's died? the secret? Chapter 7 For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, Waving his fat, jewelled hands and talking at the top of his voice, Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, on the other hand, rather liked him, at least he declared he did, and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. Holwood amused himself with watching the faces in the pit the heat was terribly oppressive and the huge sunlight flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of yellow fire the youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side they talked to each other across the theatre and shared their oranges with the tawdry girls who sat beside them some women were laughing in the pit Their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of the popping of corks came from the bar. What a place to find one's divinity in, said Lord Henry. Yes, answered Dorian Gray. It was here I found her, and she is divine beyond all living things. When she acts, you will forget everything. These common rough people, with their coarse faces and brutal gestures, become quite different when she is on the stage. They sit silently and watch her. They weep and laugh as she wills them to do. She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them. And one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as oneself. The same flesh and blood as oneself? Oh, I hope not, exclaimed Lord Henry, who was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay any attention to him, Dorian, said the painter. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. Anyone you love must be marvellous, and any girl who has the effect you describe must be fine and noble. To spiritualize one's age, that is something worth doing. If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness, and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own. She is worthy of all your adoration, worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I I didn't think so at first, but I admit it now. The gods made Sybil Vane for you. Without her, you would have been incomplete. Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew that you would understand me. Harry is so cynical, he terrifies me. Ah, but here's the orchestra. It's quite dreadful, but it only lasts for about five minutes. Then the curtain rises, and you will see the girl to whom I am going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. A quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst an extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sybil Vane stepped onto the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at, one of the loveliest creatures Lord Henry thought that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her shy grace and startled eyes. A faint blush, like the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, came to her cheeks as she glanced at the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces, and her lips seemed to tremble. Basil Hallward leapt to his feet and began to applaud, motionless and as one in a dream sat Dorian Gray, gazing at her. Lord Henry peered through his glasses, murmuring, Charming! Charming! The scene was the hall of Capulet's house, and Romeo in his pilgrim's dress had entered with Mercutio and his other friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music, and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily-dressed actors, Sybil Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed while she danced, as a plant sways in the water. The curves of her throat were the curves of a white lily. Her hands seemed to be made of cool ivory. Yet she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. The few words which she had to speak. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much. Which mannerly devotion shows in this? Fair saints have hands that pilgrim's hands do touch. And palm to palm, his holy palmer's kiss, with the brief dialogue that follows, was spoken in a thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone, it was absolutely false. It was wrong in colour. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion unreal. Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. He was puzzled and anxious. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet they felt that the true test of any Juliet is the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed them there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out into the moonlight. That could not be denied. But the staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasized everything that she had to say. The beautiful passage. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush be paint my cheek, for that which thou hast heard me speak tonight was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who has been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution. When she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines, Although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract to night. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be ere one can say, It lightens. Sweet, good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when we next meet. She spoke the words, as though they conveyed no meaning to her. It was not nervousness. Indeed, so far from being nervous, she was absolutely self-contained. It was simply bad art. She was a complete failure. Even the common, uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost their interest in the play. They got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle. The Jew manager who was standing at the back of the dress circle stamped and swore with rage. The only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. She's quite beautiful, Dorian, he said, but she can't act. Let us go. I'm going to see the play through, answered the lad in a hard, bitter voice. I'm awfully sorry that I've made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologise to you both. My dear Dorian, I should think Miss Vane was ill, interrupted Hallward. We will come some other night. I wish she were ill, he rejoined, but she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. She has entirely altered. Last night she was a great artist. This evening she is merely a commonplace, mediocre actress. Don't talk like that about anyone you love, Dorian. Love is a more wonderful thing than art. They are both simply forms of imitation, remarked Lord Henry. But do let us go, Dorian. You mustn't stay here any longer. It's not good for one's morals to see bad acting. Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act, so what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? She is very lovely, and if she knows as little about life as she does about acting, she will be a delightful experience. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating, people who know absolutely everything and people who know absolutely nothing. Good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is never to have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sybil Vane. She is beautiful. What more can you want? Go away, Harry, cried the lad. I want to be alone. Basil, you must go. Can't you see that my heart is breaking? The hot tears came to his eyes. His lips trembled, and rushing to the back of the box, he leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. Let's go, Basil, said Lord Henry, with a strange tenderness in his voice, and the two young men passed out together. A few moments afterwards, the footlights flared up and the curtain rose on the third act. Dorian Gray went back to his seat. He looked pale and proud and indifferent. The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The last act was played to almost empty benches. The curtain went down on a titter and some groans. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire, There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him, and an expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly, he answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly. It was dreadful. Are you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. The girl smiled. She answered, lingering over his name with long-drawn music in her voice, as though it was sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what? he asked angrily. Why I was so bad tonight? Why I shall always be bad? Why I shall never act well again? He shrugged his shoulders. You're ill, I suppose. When you're ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself ridiculous. My friends were bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated her. Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was the one reality of my life. It was only in the theatre that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy, and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to me to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows, and I thought them real. You came, oh my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous and old and painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, that the scenery was vulgar, and that the words I had to speak were unreal, were not my words, were not what I wanted to say. You had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection, You had made me understand what love really is. My love, my love, Prince Charming, Prince of Life. I have grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can ever be. What have I to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I couldn't understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought that I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing, and I smiled. What could they know of love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian, take me away with you, where we could be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns me like fire. Oh, Dorian, Dorian, you understand now what it signifies. Even if I could do it, It would be a profanation for me to play at being in love. You've made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him and with her little fingers stroked his hair. She knelt down and pressed his hands to her lips. He drew them away and a shudder ran through him. Then he leaped up and went to the door. Yes, he cried. You have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were marvellous, because you had genius and intellect, because you realised the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You have thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. My God, how mad I was to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me once. Why once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I had never laid eyes upon you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little you can know of love, if you say it mars your art. Without your art, You are nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have borne my name. What are you now? A third-rate actress with a pretty face. The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together, and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You're not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You're acting. Acting. I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered bitterly. She rose from her knees and with a piteous expression of pain in her face came across the room to him. She put her hand upon his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. Don't touch me, he cried. A low moan broke from her and she flung herself at his feet and lay there like a trampled flower. Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me. She whispered, I'm so sorry I didn't act well. I was thinking of you all this time. But I will try. Indeed, I will try. It came so suddenly across me, my love, for you. I think I should never have known it if you hadn't kissed me. If we hadn't kissed each other. Kiss me again, my love. Don't go away from me. I couldn't bear it. Oh, don't go away from me. My brother, no, never mind, he didn't mean it. He was in jest, but you... Oh, can't you forgive me for tonight? I will work so hard and try to improve. Don't be cruel to me, because I love you better than anything in the world. After all, it is only once that I haven't pleased you. But you're quite right, Dorian. I should have shown myself more of an artist. It was foolish of me, and yet I couldn't help it. Oh, oh, don't leave me, Don't, don't leave me. A fit of passionate sobbing choked her. She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing, and Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her, and his chiselled lips curled in exquisite disdain. And there is always something ridiculous about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. I'm going, he said at last in his calm, clear voice. I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again. You have disappointed me. She wept silently and made no answer, but crept nearer. Her little hands stretched blindly out and appeared to be seeking for him. He turned on his heel and left the room. In a few moments he was out of the theatre. Where he went he hardly knew. He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets, past gaunt, black, shadowed archways and evil-looking houses. Women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter had called after him. Drunkards had reeled by, cursing and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled upon doorsteps and heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. As the dawn was just breaking, he found himself close to Covent Garden. The darkness lifted and flushed with faint fires the sky hollowed itself into a perfect pearl. Huge carts filled with nodding lilies rumbled slowly down the polished, empty street. The air was heavy with the perfume of the flowers, and their beauty seemed to bring him an anodyne for his pain. He followed into the market and watched the men unloading their wagons. A white-smocked carter offered him some cherries. He thanked him, wondered why he refused to accept any money for them, and began to eat them listlessly. They had been plucked at midnight, and the coldness of the moon had entered into them. A long line of boys carrying crates of striped tulips and of yellow and red roses defiled in front of him, threading their way through the huge jade-green piles of vegetables. Under the portico, with its grey sun-bleached pillars, loitered a troop of bedraggled, bare-headed girls waiting for the auction to be over. Others crowded round the swinging doors of the coffee-house in the piazza, the heavy cart horses slipped and stamped upon the rough stones, shaking their bells and trappings. Some of the drivers were lying asleep on a pile of sacks, iris necked and pink footed. The pigeons ran about picking up seeds. After a little while, he hailed a hansom and drove home. For a few moments, he loitered upon the doorstep, looking round at the silent square with its blank, close shuttered windows and its staring blinds. The sky, was pure opal now, and the roofs of the houses glistened like silver against it. From some chimney opposite a thin wreath of smoke was rising. It curled a violent riband, through the nacre-coloured air. In the huge gilt Venetian lantern spoil of some doge's barge that hung from the ceiling of the great oak-panelled hall of entrance, lights were still burning from three flickering jets. Thin blue petals of flame they seemed, rimmed with white fire. He turned them out, and having thrown his hat and cape on the table, passed through the library towards the door of his bedroom, a large octagonal chamber on the ground floor that, in his new-born feeling for luxury, he had just had decorated for himself, and hung with some curious Renaissance tapestries that had been discovered stored in a disused attic at Selby Royal. As he was turning the handle of the door, his eye fell upon the portrait Basil Hallward had painted of him. He started back, as if in surprise. Then he went on into his own room, looking somewhat puzzled. After he had taken the buttonhole out of his coat, he he seemed to hesitate. Finally he came back, went over to the picture, and examined it. In the dim, arrested light that struggled through the cream-coloured silk blinds, The face appeared to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. It was certainly strange. He turned round and walking to the window drew up the blind. The bright dawn flooded the room and swept the fantastic shadows into dusky corners where they lay shuddering. But the strange expression that he had noticed in the face of the portrait seemed to linger there, to be more intensified even. The quivering ardent sunlight showed him the lines of cruelty round the mouth as clearly as if he had been looking into a mirror after he had done some dreadful thing. He winced, and taking up from the table an overglass framed in ivory cupids, one of Lord Henry's many presents to him, glanced hurriedly into its polished depths. No line like that warped his red lips. What did it mean? He rubbed his eyes and came close to the picture and examined it again. There were no signs of any change when he looked into the actual painting, and yet there was no doubt that the whole expression had altered. It was not a mere fancy of his own. The thing was horribly apparent. He threw himself into a chair and began to think. Suddenly there flashed across his mind what he had said in Basil Hallward's studio the day the picture had been finished. Yes, he remembered it perfectly. He had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young and the portrait grow old, that his own beauty might be untarnished and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought and that he might keep all the delicate bloom and loveliness of his then just conscious boyhood. Surely his wish had not been fulfilled. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous even to think of them, and yet there was the picture before him with a touch of cruelty in the mouth. Cruelty? Had he been cruel? It was the girl's fault, not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist, had given his love to her because he had thought her great. Then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy, and yet a feeling of infinite regret came over him as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he had watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he had suffered also. During the three terrible hours that the play had lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, aeon upon aeon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment, if he wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions When they took lovers, it was merely to have someone with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry had told him that, and Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. But the picture, what was he to say of that? It held the secret of his life and told his story. It had taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? No. It was merely an illusion wrought on the troubled senses. The horrible night that he had passed had left phantoms behind it. Suddenly there had fallen upon his brain that tiny scarlet speck that makes men mad. The picture had not changed. It was folly to think so. Yet it was watching him, with its beautiful marred face and its cruel smile. Its bright hair gleamed in the early sunlight. Its blue eyes met his own. A sense of infinite pity, Not for himself, But for the painted image of himself, Came over him. It had altered already, And would alter more. Its gold would wither into grey, Its red and white roses would die. For every sin that he committed, A stain would fleck and wreck its fairness. But he would not sin. This picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. He wouldn't see Lord Henry any more, wouldn't at any rate listen to those subtle poisonous theories that in Basil Hallward’s garden had first stirred with him the passion for impossible things. He would go back to Vane, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. Yes, it was his duty to do so. She must have suffered more than he did. Poor child. He'd been selfish and cruel to her. The fascination that she had exercised over him would return. They would be happy together. His life with her would be beautiful and pure. He got up from his chair and drew a large screen right in front of the portrait, shuddering as he glanced at it. How horrible, he murmured to himself, and he walked across to the window and opened it. When he stepped out onto the grass, he drew a deep breath. The fresh morning air seemed to drive away all his sombre passions. He thought only of Sybil. A faint echo of his love came back to him. He repeated her name over and over again. The birds that were singing in the dew-drenched garden seemed to be telling the flowers about her. Chapter 8 It was long past noon when he awoke. His valet had crept several times on tiptoe into the room to see if he was stirring, and had wondered what made his young master sleep so late. Finally his bell sounded, and Victor came in softly with a cup of tea and a pile of letters on a small tray of old Sevres china, and drew back the olive-satin curtains with their shimmering blue lining that hung in front of the three tall windows. Monsieur has slept well this morning, he said, smiling. What o'clock is it, Victor? asked Dorian Gray, drowsily. One hour and a quarter, monsieur. How late it was! He sat up, and having sipped some tea, turned over his letters. One of them was from Lord Henry, and had been brought by hand that morning. He hesitated for a moment, and then put it aside. The others he opened listlessly. They contained the usual collection of cards, invitations to dinner, tickets for private views, programs of charity concerts and the like that are showered on fashionable young men every morning during the season. There was a rather heavy bill for a chaste silver Louis Carls toilet seat that he had not yet had the courage to send on to his guardians who were extremely old-fashioned people and did not realize then we live in an age where unnecessary things are our only necessities. And there were several very courteously worded communications from German Street, money lenders offering to advance any sum of money at a moment's notice and at the most reasonable rates of interest. After about ten minutes he got up, and throwing on an elaborate dressing gown of silk-embroidered cashmere wool passed into the onyx-paved bathroom. The cool water refreshed him after his long sleep. He seemed to have forgotten all that he had gone through. A dim sense of having taken part in some strange tragedy came to him once or twice, but there was the unreality of a dream about it. As soon as he was dressed, he went into the library and sat down to a light French breakfast that had been laid out for him on a small round table close to the open window. It was an exquisite day. The warm air seemed laden with spices. A bee flew in and buzzed round the blue dragon bowl that filled with sulphur-yellow roses stood before him. He felt perfectly happy. Suddenly, his eye fell on the screen that he had placed in front of the portrait, and he started. Too cold for monsieur? asked his valet, putting an omelette on the table. I shut the window. Dorian shook his head. I'm not cold, he murmured. Was it all true? Had the portrait really changed, or had it been simply his own imagination that had made him see a look of evil where there had been a look of joy? Surely a painted canvas could not alter. The thing was absurd. It would serve as a tale to tell Basil some day. It would make him smile. And yet, how vivid was his recollection of the whole thing. First, In the dim twilight and then in the bright dawn, he had seen the touch of cruelty round the warped lips. He almost dreaded his valet leaving the room. He knew that when he was alone he would have to examine the portrait. He was afraid of certainty. When the coffee and cigarettes had been brought and the man turned to go, he felt a wild desire to tell him to remain. As the door was closing behind him, he called him back. The man stood waiting for his orders. Dorian looked at him for a moment. I'm not at home to anyone, Victor, he said with a sigh. The man bowed and retired. Then he rose from the table, lit a cigarette, and flung himself down on a luxuriously cushioned couch that stood facing the screen. The screen was an old one of gilt Spanish leather, stamped and wrought with a rather florid Louis XIV pattern. He scanned it curiously wondering if ever before it had concealed the secret of a man's life. Should he move it aside after all? Why not let it stay there? What was the use of knowing? If the thing was true, it was terrible. If it was not true, why trouble about it? But what if, by some fate or deadlier chance, eyes other than his had spied behind and saw the horrible change? What should he do if Basil Hallwood came and asked to look at his own picture? Basil would be sure to do that. No, the thing had to be examined, and at once. Anything would be better than this dreadful state of doubt. He got up and locked both doors. At least he would be alone when he looked upon the mask of his shame. Then he drew the screen aside and saw himself face to face. It was perfectly true the portrait had altered as he often remembered afterwards and always with no small wonder he found himself at first gazing at the portrait with a feeling of almost scientific interest that such a change should have taken place was incredible to him and yet it was a fact was there some subtle affinity between the chemical atoms that shaped themselves into form and colour on the canvas and the soul There was within him. Could it be that what the soul thought, they realized, that what it dreamed, they made true? Or was there some other, more terrible reason? He shuddered and felt afraid, and going back to the couch, lay there gazing at the picture in sickened horror. One thing, however, that he felt it had done for him, it had made him conscious how unjust, how cruel he had been to Sybil Vane. It was not too late to make reparation for that. She could still be his wife. His unreal and selfish love would yield to some higher influence, would be transformed into some nobler passion. And the portrait that Basil Horwood had painted of him would be a guide to him through life, would be to him what holiness is to some, and conscience to others, and the fear of God to us all. There were opiates for remorse, drugs that could lull the moral sense to sleep. But here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was an ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their souls. Three o'clock struck and four and the half-hour rang its double chime, but Dorian Gray did not stir. He was trying to gather up the scarlet threads of life and to weave them into a pattern, to find his way through the sanguine labyrinth of passions through which he was wandering. He did not know what to do or what to think. Finally, he went over to the table and wrote a passionate letter to the girl he had loved, imploring her forgiveness and accusing himself of madness. He covered page after page with wild words of sorrow and wilder words of pain. There is a luxury in self-reproach. When we blame ourselves, we feel that no one else has the right to blame us. It is the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution. When Dorian had finished the letter, he felt that he had been forgiven. Suddenly there came a knock to the door and he heard Lord Henry's voice outside, My dear boy, I must see you. Let me in at once. I can't bear you shutting yourself up like this. He made no answer at first, but remained quite still. The knocking still continued and grew louder. Yes, it was better to let Lord Henry in and to explain to him the new life he was going to lead, to quarrel with him if it became necessary to quarrel, to part, if parting was inevitable. He jumped up, drew the screen hastily across the picture and unlocked the door. I'm so sorry for it all, Dorian, said Lord Henry as he entered. But you mustn't think too much about it. Do you mean about Sibyl Vane? asked the lad. Yes. Of course, answered Lord Henry, sinking into a chair and slowly pulling off his yellow gloves. It's dreadful from one point of view, but it was not your fault. Tell me, did you go behind and see her after the play was over? Y- yes. I-, I felt sure you had. Did you make a scene with her? I was brutal, Harry, perfectly brutal. But it's all right now. I'm not sorry for anything that has happened. It has taught me to know myself better. Ah, Dorian. I'm so glad you take it that way. I I was afraid I would find you plunged in remorse and tearing that nice curly hair of yours. I've got through all that, said Dorian, shaking his head and smiling. I'm perfectly happy now. I know what conscience is. To begin with, it's not what you told me it was. It's the divinest thing in us. Don't sneer at it, Harry, anymore, at least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the idea of my soul being hideous. A very charming artistic basis for ethics, Dorian. I congratulate you on it. But how are you going to begin? By marrying Sybil Vane. Marrying Sybil Vane? cried Lord Henry, standing up and looking at him in perplexed amazement. But my dear Dorian! Yes, Harry, I know what you're going to say. Something dreadful about marriage. Don't say it. Don't ever say things of that kind to me again. Two days ago I asked Sybil to marry me. I'm not going to break my word to her. She is to be my wife. Your wife? Dorian? Didn't you get my letter? I wrote to you this morning and sent the note down by my own man. Your letter? Oh, yes, I remember. I haven't read it yet, Harry. I was afraid there might be something in it I wouldn't like. You cut life to pieces with your epigrams. You know nothing, then. What do you mean? Lord Henry walked across the room and, sitting down by Dorian Gray, took both his hands in his own and held them tightly. Dorian, he said, my letter. Don't be frightened. I was to tell you that Sybil Vane is dead. A cry of pain broke from the lad's lips and he leaped to his feet, tearing his hands away from Lord Henry's grasp. Dead. Sybil, dead. It's not true. It's a horrible lie. How dare you say it? It's quite true, Dorian, said Lord Henry gravely. It's in all the morning papers. I wrote down to you to ask you not to see anyone till I came. There will have to be an inquest, of course, and, and you must not be mixed up in it. Things like that make a man fashionable in Paris, but in London people are so prejudiced. Here, one should never make one's debut with a scandal. One should reserve that to give an interest to one's old age. I suppose they don't know your name at the theatre? If they don't, it's all right. Did anyone see you going round her room? That is an important point. Dorian didn't answer for a few moments. He was dazed with horror. Finally, he stammered in a stifled voice, Harry, did did you say an inquest? What did you mean by that? Did Sibyl... Oh, Harry, I can't bear it, but be quick. Tell me everything at once. I have no doubt that it was not an accident, Dorian, though it must be put in that way to the public. It seems that as she was leaving the theatre with her mother, about half-past twelve or so, she said she had forgotten something upstairs, They waited some time for her, but she didn't come down again. They ultimately found her lying dead on the floor of her dressing room. She had swallowed something by mistake, some dreadful thing they use at theatres. I don't know what it was, but it either had prussic acid or white lead in it. I should fancy it was prussic acid, as she seems to have died instantaneously. Harry, Harry, it's terrible, cried the lad. Yes, it's very tragic, of course but you must not get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was seventeen. I should have thought she was almost younger than that. She looked such a child and seemed to know so very little about acting. Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. You must come and dine with me, and afterwards we will look in at the opera. It's a patty night and everyone will be there. You can come to my sister's box. She has got some smart women with her. So, I have murdered Sybil Vane, said Dorian Gray half to himself. Murdered her, as surely as if I had cut her little throat with a knife. Yet the roses are not less lovely for all that. The birds sing just as happily in my garden. And tonight I am to dine with you and then go on to the opera and sup somewhere, I suppose, afterwards. How extraordinarily dramatic life is. If I had read all this in a book, Harry, I think I would have wept over it. Somehow, now that it has happened, actually, and to me, it seems far too wonderful for tears. Here is the first passionate love letter I have ever written in my life. Strange that my first passionate love letter should have been addressed to a dead girl. Can they feel, I wonder, those white silent people we call the dead? Can she feel or know? Or listen? Oh Harry, how I loved her once. It seems years ago to me now. She was everything to me. Then came that dreadful night was it really only last night? When she played so badly, and my heart almost broke. She explained it all to me, it was terribly pathetic. But I wasn't moved a bit. I thought her shallow. Suddenly Something happened that made me afraid. I can't tell you what it was, but it was terrible. I said I would go back to her. I felt I had done wrong. And now, she's dead. My God, my God, Harry, what shall I do? You don't know the danger I'm in, and there's nothing to keep me straight. She would have done that for me. She had no right to kill herself. It was selfish of her. My dear Dorian, answered Lord Henry, taking a cigarette from his case and producing a gold Latin matchbox, the only way a woman can ever reform a man is by boring him so completely that he loses all possible interest in life. If you had married this girl, you would have been wretched. Of course you would have treated her kindly. One can always be kind to people about whom one cares nothing but she would have soon found that you were absolutely indifferent to her. And when a woman finds that out about her husband, she either becomes dreadfully dowdy or wears very smart bonnets that some other woman's husband has to pay for. I say nothing about the social mistake which would have been abject, which of course I would not have allowed, but I assure you that in any case the whole thing would have been an absolute failure. "'I suppose it would,' muttered the lad, "'walking up and down the room and looking horribly pale. "'But I thought it was my duty. "'It's not my fault that this terrible tragedy "'has prevented my doing what was right. "'I remember you saying once "'that there is a fatality about good resolutions, "'that they're always made too late. "'Mine certainly were. "'Good resolutions are useless attempts "'to interfere with scientific laws.' Their origin is pure vanity, their result is absolutely nil. They give us now and again some of those luxurious, sterile emotions that have a certain charm for the weak. That is all that can be said for them. They are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Harry, cried Dorian Gray, coming over and sitting down beside him, why is it that I cannot feel this tragedy as much as I want to? I don't think I'm heartless, do you? You have done too many foolish things during the last fortnight to be entitled to give yourself that name, Dorian, answered Lord Henry with his sweet, melancholy smile. The lad frowned. I don't like that explanation, Harry rejoined. But I'm glad you don't think I'm heartless. I'm nothing of the kind, I know I'm not, and yet I must admit that this thing that has happened does not affect me as it should. It seems to me to be simply like a wonderful ending to a wonderful play. It has all the terrible beauty of a Greek tragedy, a tragedy in which I took a great part, but by which I have not been wounded. It's an interesting question, said Lord Henry, who found an exquisite pleasure in playing on the lad's unconscious egotism. An extremely interesting question. I fancy that the true explanation is this. It often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. They give us an impression of sheer brute force, and we revolt against that. Sometimes, however, a tragedy that possesses artistic elements of beauty crosses our lives. If these elements of beauty are real, the whole thing simply appeals to our sense of dramatic effect. Suddenly, we find that we are no longer the actors, we're the spectators of the play, or rather, we are both. We watch ourselves, and the mere wonder of the spectacle enthralls us. In the present case, What is it that has really happened? Someone has killed herself for love of you. I wish that I had ever had such an experience. It would have made me in love with love for the rest of my life. The people who have adored me, there have not been very many, but there have been some, have always insisted on living on long after I had ceased to care for them or they to care for me. They have become stout and tedious. And when I meet them, they go in at once for reminiscences. That awful memory of woman, what a fearful thing it is, and what an utter intellectual stagnation it reveals. One should absorb the colour of life, but one should never remember its details, and details are always vulgar. I must sow poppies in my garden, said Dorian. There is no necessity, rejoined his companion. Life always has poppies in her hands. Of course, now and then things linger. I once wore nothing but violets all through one season as a form of artistic mourning for a romance that would not die. Ultimately, however, it did die. I forget what killed it. I think it was her proposing to sacrifice the whole world for me. That is always a dreadful moment. It fills on with the terror of eternity. Well, would you believe it? A week ago at Lady Hampshire's, I found myself seated at dinner next to the lady in question, and she insisted on going over the whole thing again, and digging up the past and raking up the future. I had buried my romance in a bed of ash fiddle. She dragged it out again and assured me that I had spoiled her life. I'm bound to state that she ate an enormous dinner so I didn't feel any anxiety. But what a lack of taste, she showed. The one charm of the past is that it is the past, but women never know when the curtain has fallen. They always want a sixth act, and as soon as the interest of the play is entirely over, they propose to continue it. If they were allowed their own way, every comedy would have a tragic ending and every tragedy would culminate in farce. They are charmingly artificial, but they have no sense of art. You are more fortunate than I am. I assure you, Dorian, that not one of the women I have known would have done for me what Sybil Vane did for you. Ordinary women always console themselves. Some of them do it by going in for sentimental colours. Never trust a woman who wears mauve, whatever her age may be, or a woman over thirty-five who is fond of pink ribbons. It always means that they have a history. Others find a great consolation in suddenly discovering the good qualities of their husbands. They flaunt their conjugal felicity in one's face, as if it were the most fascinating of sins. Religion consoles some. It's mysteries have all the charms of a flirtation, a woman told me, and I can quite understand it. Besides, nothing makes one so vain as being told that one is a sinner. Conscience makes egotists of us all. Yes, there is really no end to the consolations that women find in modern life. Indeed, I have not mentioned the most important one. What is that, Harry? said the lad listlessly. Oh, the obvious consolation. Taking someone else's admirer when one loses one's own. In good society that always whitewashes a woman. But really, Dorian, how different Sybil Vane must have been from all the women one meets. There is something, to me, quite beautiful about her death. I'm glad I'm living in a century when such wonders happen. They make one believe in the reality of things we all play with, such as romance, passion and love. I was terribly cruel to her. You forget that. I'm afraid that women appreciate cruelty, downright cruelty, more than anything else. They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the same. They love being dominated. I'm sure you were splendid. I have never seen you really and absolutely angry, but I can fancy how delightful you looked. And after all, you said something to me the day before yesterday that seemed to me at the time to be merely fanciful, but that I see now was absolutely true, and it holds the key to everything. What was that, Harry? You said to me that Sybil Vane represented to you all the heroines of romance, that she was Desdemona one night and Ophelia the other, that if she died as Juliet, she came to life as Imogen. She will never come to life again now, muttered the lad, burying his face in his hands. No, she will never come to life. She has played her last part. But you must think of that lonely death in a tawdry dressing-room simply as a strange lurid fragment from some Jacobean tragedy, as a wonderful scene from Webster, or Ford, or Cyril Tourneur. The girl never really lived, and so she has never really died. To you, at least, she was always a dream, a phantom that flitted through Shakespeare's plays and left them lovelier for its presence, a reed through which Shakespeare's music sounded richer and more full of joy. The moment she touched actual life, she marred it, and it marred her, and so she passed away. Mourn for Ophelia, if you like. Put ashes on your head because Cordelia was strangled. Cry out against heaven because the daughter of Brabantio died, but don't waste your tears over Sibyl Vane. She was less real than they are. There was a silence. The evening darkened in the room. Noiselessly and with silver feet, the shadows crept in from the garden. The colours faded wearily out of things. After some time, Dorian Gray looked up. You have explained me to myself, Harry, he murmured with something of a sigh of relief. I felt all that you have said, but somehow I was afraid of it and I could not express it to myself. How well you know me, but we will not talk again of what has happened. It has been a marvellous experience, that is all. I wonder if life still has in store for me anything as marvellous. Life has everything in store for you, Dorian. There is nothing that you, with your extraordinary good looks, will not be able to do. But suppose, Harry, I became haggard and old and wrinkled. What then? Ah, then, said Lord Henry, rising to go. Then, my dear Dorian, you would have to fight for your victories. As it is, they are brought to you. No, you must keep your good looks. We live in an age that reads too much to be wise, and that thinks too much to be beautiful. We cannot spare you. And now you had better dress and drive down to the club. We are rather late as it is. I-, I think I shall join you at the Opera, Harry. I feel too tired to eat anything. What is the number of your sister's box? The 27, I believe. It's on the grand tier. You'll see her name on the door. But I'm sorry you won't come and dine. I, I don't feel up to it, said Dorian listlessly. But I'm awfully obliged to you for all that you've sent to me. You are certainly my best friend. No one has ever understood me as you have. We are only at the beginning of our friendship, Dorian answered Lord Henry, shaking him by the hand. Goodbye, I shall see you before nine-thirty, I hope. Remember, Patty is singing. As he closed the door behind him, Dorian Gray touched the bell, and in a few moments Victor appeared with the lamps and drew the blinds down. He waited impatiently for him to go. The man seemed to take an interminable time over everything. As soon as he had left, he rushed to the screen and drew it back. No, there was no further change in the picture. It had received the news of Sybil Vane's death before he had known of it himself. He was conscious of the events of life as they occurred. The vicious cruelty that marred the fine lines of the mouth had, no doubt, appeared at the very moment that the girl had drunk the poison, whatever it was or was it indifferent to results? Did it really take cognizance of what passed within the soul? He wondered, and hoped that some day he would see the change taking place before his very eyes, shuddering as he hoped it. Poor Sibyl. What a romance it had all been. She had often mimicked death upon the stage, then death himself had touched her and taken her with him. How had she played that dreadful last scene? Had she cursed him as she died? No, she had died for love of him, and love would always be a sacrament to him now. She had atoned for everything by the sacrifice she had made of her life. He would not think any more of what she had made him go through, of that horrible night at the theatre. When he thought of it, it would be as a wonderful, tragic figure sent on to the world stage to show the supreme reality of love. A wonderful, tragic figure. Tears came to his eyes as he remembered her childlike look and winsome, fanciful ways and shy, tremulous grace. He brushed them away hastily and looked again at the picture. He felt that the time had really come for making his choice. or. Oh, Had his choice already been made? Yes, life had decided that for him, life and his own infinite curiosity about life. Eternal youth, infinite passion, pleasures subtle and secret, wild joys and wilder sins. He was to have all these things. The portrait was to bear the burden of his shame. That was all. A feeling of pain crept over him as he thought of the desecration that was in store for the fair face on the canvas. Once, in boyish mockery of narcissus, he had kissed it, or feigned to kiss those painted lips that now smiled so cruelly at him. Morning after morning he had sat before the portrait, wondering at its beauty, almost enamoured of it, as it seemed to him at times. Was it to alter now with every mood to which he yielded? Was it to become a monstrous and loathsome thing, to be hidden away in a locked room, to be shut out from the sunlight that had so often touched the brighter gold, the waving wonder of its hair? The pity of it. The pity of it. For a moment he thought of praying that the horrible sympathy that existed between him and the picture might cease. It had changed in answer to a prayer. Perhaps in answer to a prayer, it might remain unchanged. And yet, who that knew anything about life would surrender the chance of remaining always young, however fantastic that chance might be, or with what fateful consequences it might be fraught? Besides, was it really under his control? Had it indeed been prayer that had produced the substitution? Might there not be some curious scientific reason for it all? If thought could exercise its influence upon a living organism, might not thought exercise an influence upon dead and inorganic things? Nay, without thought or conscious desire, might not things external to ourselves vibrate in unison with our moods and passions, atom calling to atom in secret love or strange affinity? But the reason was of no importance. He would never again tempt by a prayer any terrible power. If the picture was to alter, it was to alter. That was all. Why inquire too closely into it? For there would be a real pleasure in watching it. He would be able to follow his mind into its secret places. This portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. As it had revealed to him his own body, so it would reveal to him his own soul. And when winter came upon it, He would still be standing where spring trembles on the verge of summer. When the blood crept from its face and left behind a pallid mask of chalk with leaden eyes, he would keep the glamour of boyhood. Not one blossom of his loveliness would ever fade. Not one pulse of his life would ever weaken. Like the gods of the Greeks, he would be strong and fleet and joyous. What did it matter what happened to the coloured image on the canvas? He would be safe. That was everything. He drew the screen back into its former place in front of the picture, smiling as he did so, and passed into his bedroom, where his valet was already waiting for him. An hour later, he was at the opera, and Lord Henry was leaning over his chair. Chapter 9 As he was sitting at breakfast next morning, Basil Hallward was shown into the room. I'm so glad to have found you, Doreen, he said gravely. I called last night, and they told me you were at the opera. Of course I knew that was impossible, but I wish you had left word where you had really gone to. I passed a terrible evening, half afraid that one tragedy might be followed by another. I I think you might have telegraphed for me when you heard of it first. I read of it quite by chance in a late edition of The Globe that I picked up at the club. I came here at once and was miserable at not finding you. I can't tell you how heartbroken I am about the whole thing. I know what you must suffer. But but where were you? Did you go down and see the girl's mother? For a moment I thought of following you there. They gave the address in the paper, somewhere in the Euston Road, isn't it? But I was afraid of intruding upon a sorrow that I couldn't lighten. Poor woman. What a state she must be in. And her only child, too. What did she say about it all? My dear Basil, how do I know? murmured Dorian Gray, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass and looking dreadfully bored. I was at the opera. You should have come on there. I met Lady Gwendolyn, Harry's sister, for the first time. We were in her box. She's perfectly charming. And Patty sang divinely. Don't talk about horrid subjects. If one doesn't talk about a thing... It has never happened. It is simply expression, as Harry says, that gives reality to things. I may mention that she was not the woman's only child. There is a son, a charming fellow, I believe, but he's not on the stage. He's a a sailor or something. And now, tell me about yourself and what you're painting. You went to the opera, said Holwood, speaking very slowly and with a strained touch of pain in his voice. You went to the opera while Sybil Vane was lying dead in some sordid lodging. You can talk to me of other women being charming and of Patty singing divinely before the girl you loved has even the quiet of a grave to sleep in. Why, man, there are horrors in store for that little white body of hers. Stop, Basil, I won't hear it, cried Dorian, leaping to his feet. You must not tell me about things. What is done is done. What is past is past. You call yesterday the past. What has the actual lapse of time got to do with it? It's only shallow people who require years to get rid of an emotion. A man who is master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Dorian, this is horrible. Something has changed you completely. You look exactly the same wonderful boy who day after day used to come down to my studio and sit for his picture. But you were simple, natural and affectionate then. You were the most unspoiled creature in the whole world. Now, I don't know what's come over you. You, you talk as if you had no heart, no pity in you. It's all Harry's influence, I see that. The lad flushed up and, going to the window, looked out for a few moments on the green, flickering, sun-lashed garden. I owe a great deal to Harry, Basil, he said at last. More than I owe to you. You only taught me to be vain. Well, I'm punished for that, Dorian, or shall be some day. I don't know what you mean, Basil, he exclaimed, turning round. I don't know what you want. What do you want? I want the Dorian grey I used to paint. Said the artist sadly. Basil said, the lad going over to him and putting his hand on his shoulder, "You have come too late. Yesterday, when I heard that Sybil Vane had killed herself, killed herself. Good heavens! Is there no doubt about that?" cried Hallward, looking up at him with an expression of horror. "My dear Basil, surely you don't think it was a vulgar accident? Of course she killed herself." The elder man buried his face in his hands. How fearful, he muttered, and a shudder ran through him. No, said Dorian Gray, there's nothing fearful about it. It's one of the great romantic tragedies of the age. As a rule, people who act lead the most commonplace lives. They're good husbands or faithful wives or or something tedious. You know what I mean. Middle-class virtue and all that kind of thing. How different Sybil was. She lived her finest tragedy, She was always a heroine. The last night she played, the night you saw her, she acted badly because she had known the reality of love. When she knew its unreality, she died, as Juliet might have died. She passed again into the sphere of art. There is something of the martyr about her. Her death has all the pathetic uselessness of martyrdom, all its wasted beauty. But as I was saying... You must not think I have suffered. If you had come in yesterday at a particular moment, about half past five perhaps, or a quarter to six, you would have found me in tears. Even Harry, who was here, who brought me the news in fact, had no idea what I was going through. I suffered immensely. Then it passed away. I cannot repeat an emotion. No one can, except sentimentalists. And you are awfully unjust, Basil. You came down here to console me. That is charming of you. You find me consoled, and you're furious. How like a sympathetic person. You remind me of a story Harry told me about a certain philanthropist who spent 20 years of his life in trying to get some grievance redressed or or some unjust law altered. I forget exactly what it was. Finally, he succeeded, and nothing could exceed his disappointment. He had absolutely nothing to do almost died of ennui, and became a confirmed misanthrope. And besides, my dear old Basil, if you really want to console me, teach me rather to forget what has happened, or to see it from a proper artistic point of view. Was it not Gautier who used to write about la consolation des arts? I remember picking up a little vellum-covered book in your studio one day and chancing on that delightful phrase. Well? I'm not like that young man you told me of when we were down at Marlow together, the young man who used to say that yellow satin could console one for all the miseries of life. I love beautiful things that one can touch and handle. Old brocades, green bronzes, lacquer work, carved ivories, exquisite surroundings, luxury, pomp. There is much to be got from all these. But the artistic temperament they create, or at any rate reveal, is still more to me. To become the spectator of one's own life, as Harry says, is to escape the suffering of life. I I know you're surprised at my talking to you like this. You have not realized how I have developed. I was a schoolboy when you knew me. I am a man now. I have new passions, new thoughts, new ideas. I am different, but you must not like me less. I am changed, but you must always be my friend. Of course I am very fond of Harry, but I know that you are better than he is. You are not stronger, you are too much afraid of life, but you are better, and how happy we used to be together. Don't leave me, Basil, and don't quarrel with me. I am what I am. There is nothing more to be said the painter felt strangely moved the lad was infinitely dear to him and his personality had been the great turning point in his art he could not bear the idea of reproaching him any more after all his indifference was probably merely a mood that would pass away there was so much in him that was good so much in him that was noble well dorian he said at length with a sad smile I won't speak to you again about this horrible thing after today. I only trust your name won't be mentioned in connection with it. The inquest is to take place this afternoon. Have they summoned you? Dorian shook his head, and a look of annoyance passed over his face at the mention of the word inquest. There was something so crude and vulgar about everything of the kind. They don't know my name, he answered. But surely she did. Only my Christian name. And that I am quite sure she never mentioned to anyone. She told me once that they were all rather curious to learn who I was, and that she invariably told them my name was Prince Charming. It was pretty of her. You must do me a drawing of Sybil, Vassil. I should like to have something more of her than the memory of a few kisses and some broken, pathetic words. I'll try to do something, Dorian, if it would please you. But you must come back and sit to me yourself again. I can't get on without you. I can never sit to you again, Basil. It is impossible, he exclaimed, starting back. The painter stared at him. My dear boy, what nonsense. He cried, do you mean to say you don't like what I did of you? Where is it? Why have you pulled a screen in front of it? Let me look at it. It's the best thing I've ever done. Do take the screen away, Dorian. It's simply disgraceful of your servant hiding my work like that. I felt the room look different as I came in. My servant has nothing to do with it, Basil. You don't imagine I let him arrange my room for me. He settles my flowers sometimes, that's all. No, I did it myself. The light was too strong on the portrait. Too strong? Surely not, my dear fellow. It's an admirable place for it. Let me see it. And Holwood walked towards the centre of the room. A cry of terror broke from Dorian Gray's lips, and he rushed between the painter and the screen. Basil, he said, looking very pale, you must not look at it. I don't wish you to. Not look at my own work? You're not serious. Why shouldn't I look at it? exclaimed Holwood, laughing. If you try to look at it, Basil, on my word of honour, I will never speak to you again as long as I live. I'm quite serious. I don't offer any explanation, and you are not to ask for any. But remember... If you touch this screen, everything is over between us. Holwood was thunderstruck. He looked at Dorian Gray in absolute amazement. He'd never seen him like this before. The lad was actually pallid with rage. His hands were clenched, and the pupils of his eyes were like discs of blue fire. He was trembling all over. Dorian, don't speak. But, but what's the matter? Of course I won't look at it if you don't want me to, he said rather coldly, turning on his heel and going over towards the window. But really, it seems rather absurd that I shouldn't see my own work, especially as I'm going to exhibit it in Paris in the autumn. I shall probably have to give it another coat of varnish before that, so I must see it some day. And why not today? To exhibit it? You, You want to exhibit it? exclaimed Dorian Gray, a strange sense of terror creeping over him. Was the world going to be shown his secret? for people to gape at the mystery of his life. That was impossible. Something he didn't know what had to be done at once. Yes, I don't suppose you'll object to that. Georges Petit is going to collect all my best pictures for a special exhibition in the Rue de Seize, which will open the first week in October. The portrait will only be away a month. I should think you could easily spare it for that time. In fact, you're sure to be out of town, and if you keep it always behind the screen, you can't care much about it. Dorian Gray passed his hand over his forehead. There were beads of perspiration there. He felt that he was on the brink of a horrible danger. You told me a month ago that you would never exhibit it, he cried. Why have you changed your mind? You people who go in for being consistent have just as many moods as others have. The only difference is that your moods are rather meaningless. You can't have forgotten that you assured me most solemnly that nothing in the world would induce you to send it to any exhibition. You told Harry exactly the same thing. He stopped suddenly, and a gleam of light came into his eyes. He remembered that Lord Henry had said to him once, half seriously and half in jest, if you want to have a strange quarter of an hour, get Basil to tell you why he won't exhibit your picture. He told me why I wouldn't, and it was a revelation to me. Yes, yes. Perhaps Basil, too, had his secret. He would ask him and try. Basil, he said, coming over quite close and looking him straight in the face. We each of us have a secret. Let me know yours, and I shall tell you mine. What was your reason for refusing to exhibit my picture? The painter shuddered in spite of himself. Dorian, if I told you you might like me less than you do, and you would certainly laugh at me, I couldn't bear your doing either of those two things. If you wish me never to look at your picture again, I'm content. I have always you to look at. If you wish the best work I have ever done to be hidden from the world, I'm satisfied. Your friendship is dearer to me than any fame or reputation. No, Basil, you must tell me, insisted Dorian Gray. I think I have a right to know. His feeling of terror passed away and curiosity had taken its place. He was determined to find out Basil Hallward's mystery. Let us sit down, Dorian, said the painter, looking troubled. Let us sit down and just answer me one question. Have you noticed in the picture something curious, something that probably at first didn't strike you, but that revealed itself to you suddenly? Basil, cried the lad, clutching the arms of his chair with trembling hands and gazing at him with wild, startled eyes. I see you did. Don't speak. Wait till you hear what I have to say. Dorian, from the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I was dominated, soul, brain and power by you. You became to me the visible incarnation of that unseen ideal whose memory haunts us artists like an exquisite dream. I worshipped you. I grew jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself, I was only happy when I was with you, when you were away from me, you were still present in my art, of course I never let you know anything about this, it would have been impossible, you wouldn't have understood it, I hardly understood it myself, I only knew that I had seen perfection face to face, that the world had become wonderful to my eyes, too wonderful perhaps for in such mad worships there is peril, the peril of losing them no less than the peril of keeping them. Weeks and weeks went on, and I grew more and more absorbed in you. Then came a new development. I had drawn you as Paris in dainty armour, and as Adonis with huntsman's cloak and polished boar-spear, crowned with heavy lotus blossoms. You had sat on the prow of Adrian's barge, gazing across the green turbid Nile. You had leaned over the still pool of some Greek woodland and seen in the water's silent silver the marvel of your own face, and it had been all what art should be, unconscious, ideal, and, and remote. One day, a fatal day, I sometimes think, I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you as you actually are, not in the costume of dead ages, but in your own dress and in your own time. Whether it was the realism of the method or the mere wonder of your own personality thus directly presented to me without mist or veil, I cannot tell. But I know that as I worked at it, every flake and film of colour seemed to me to reveal my secret. I grew afraid that others would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I had put too much of myself into it. Then it was that I resolved never to allow the picture to be exhibited. You were a little annoyed, but then you didn't realise all that it meant to me. Harry, to whom I talked about it, laughed at me. But I didn't mind that. When the picture was finished, and I sat alone with it, I felt that I was right. Well, after a few days the thing left my studio, and as soon as I had got rid of the intolerable fascination of its presence, It seemed to me that I had been foolish in imagining that I had seen anything in it, more than that you were extremely good-looking and that I could paint. Even now, I can't help feeling that it's a mistake to think that the passion one feels in creation is ever really shown in the work one creates. Art is always more abstract than we fancy. Form and colour, tell us. a Form and colour, that's all. It often seems to me that art conceals the artist far more completely than it ever reveals him. And so, when I got this offer from Paris, I determined to make your portrait the principal thing in my exhibition. It never occurred to me that you would refuse. I see now that you were right. The picture can't be shown. You mustn't be angry with me, Dorian, for what I've told you. As I said to Harry once, you were made to be worshipped. Dorian Gray drew a long breath. The colour came back to his cheeks and a smile played about his lips. The peril was over. He was safe for the time. Yet, he couldn't help feeling infinite pity for the painter who had just made this strange confession to him and wondered if he himself would ever be so dominated by the personality of a friend. Lord Henry had the charm of being very dangerous, but that was all. He was too clever and too cynical to be really fond of. Would there ever be someone who would fill him with strange idolatry? Was that one of the things that life had in store? It's extraordinary to me, Dorian, said Hallward, that you should have seen this in the portrait. Did you really see it? I saw something in it, he answered, something that seemed to me very curious. Well, you don't mind my looking at the thing now? Dorian shook his head. You must not ask me that, Basil. I could not possibly let you stand in front of that picture. You will someday, surely. Never. Well, perhaps you're right. And now, goodbye, Dorian. You have been the one person in my life who has really influenced my art. Whatever I have done that is good, I owe to you. Ah, You don't know what it's cost me to tell you all that I've told you. My dear Basil, said Doreen, what have you told me? Simply that you felt you admired me too much. That is not even a compliment. It wasn't intended as a compliment. It was a confession. Now that I've made it, something seemed to have gone out of me. Perhaps one should never put one's worship into words. It was a very disappointing confession. Why, what did you expect, Dorian? You didn't see anything else in the picture, did you? There was nothing else to see. No, there was nothing else to see. Why do you ask? But you mustn't talk about worship. It's foolish. You and I are still friends, Basil, and we must always remain so. You have got Harry, said the painter sadly. Oh, Harry, cried the lad with a ripple of laughter. Harry spends his days in saying what's incredible, and his evenings in doing what is improbable, just the sort of life I'd like to lead. But still, I don't think I would go to Harry if I were in trouble. I would sooner go to you, Basil. You'll sit to me again. Impossible. You spoil my life as an artist by refusing, Dorian. No man comes across two ideal things. Few come across one. I can't explain it to you, Basil, but I must never sit to you again. There is something fatal about a portrait. It has a life of its own. I'll come and have tea with you. That will be just as pleasant. Pleasanter for you, I'm afraid, murmured Hallward regretfully. And now goodbye. I'm sorry you won't let me look at the picture once again, but that can't be helped. I quite understand what you feel about it. As he left the room, Dorian Gray smiled to himself. Poor Basil. How little he knew of the true reason. And how strange it was that instead of having been forced to reveal his own secret, he had succeeded almost by chance in wresting a secret from his friend. How much that strange confession explained to him. The painter's absurd fits of jealousy, his wild devotion, his extravagant panegyrics, his curious reticences. He understood them all now, and he felt sorry. There seemed to him to be something tragic in a friendship so coloured by romance. He sighed and touched the bell. The portrait must be hidden away at all costs. He could not run such a risk of discovery again. It had been mad of him to have allowed the thing to remain even for an hour in a room to which any of his friends had access. so that was part three of The Portrait of Dorian Gray, consisting of chapters seven, eight, and nine. There are 20 chapters in all, so we've got a little bit to go. I'm planning to do the episodes in two-hour chunks, not much more than two hours. So in this one, I think the interesting thing about this particular one is the um, the psychopathy of Dorian Gray himself. So he's got two people. He's got Lord Harry, who is the devil, although he's a very charming devil, as Mephistopheles always is. And we've got Basil, who is the voice of reason, who's the angel on his shoulder. Uh, they're not completely devil or angel. Harry Wotton tends to be very cavalier. He isn't very kind about women. He doesn't like Americans, and he certainly doesn't like the lower classes. And so, and, and yet he kind of considers himself a paragon of virtue when he does pretty much nothing. He's just one of the idle rich. And then Basil is the painter, far more serious, kinder. They're a strange bunch. And Dorian seems to be a colourless character who takes on. And he, in fact, says when he's with Harry, oh, you're my best friend. And then when he's with Basil, he says, oh, you're my best friend. And, he, he, you know, so he's pulled between the two of them. I I wondered, as I was listening to it, whether how much of this is Oscar Wilde that we're hearing? Is Oscar Wilde really the psychopath who thinks these awful things about women and common people and Americans? Or is this just Oscar Wilde? Speaking through his character, so is he Lord Harry Wotton, or is he a, actually a kinder person? I, I don't know much about Oscar Wilde; I never met him, um, obviously, so I don't really know. But you, you think that there's so much of archness in his stories that he he probably was did come across as a bit like uh, Lord Harry Wotton. People may have other views on this, and please comment if you do. However, of course, there is some. Kindness, not much. A little bit of kindness in these stories, through through Basil particularly. It's interesting that Basil is um, the one in in the third chapter of this chapter nine who admits that he's pretty much admits that he's gay and that he loves Dorian. And of course, Oscar Wilde was gay, famously went to jail for it. And it was um pretty extraordinary for people to, in a mainstream novel like this, to admit that they were gay. Uh, and so rather brave. And it, and I think perhaps it's no. Um, it's no coincidence, then, that actually Basil is the more sympathetic character. He's a, he's a person who has feelings and thoughts. He loves people. He is kind. Um, Harry Watton, we wonder whether he's gay, but um, it's never said. And he is married to a woman. Of course, that didn't mean much, really. And he has affairs. It's implied, but we don't know. Anyway, so that, that's the side of it. And because, I mean, Dorian Gray, the picture of him is he, he's a complete psychopath, really. And then I think the other thing I want to say, and I don't want to ramble on too much, is the, the, this concept of the picture that changes in the, in the attic is actually pretty revolutionary. I, I know we're used to it now, because this came out over a century ago, this story, so it, it has become a commonplace to say, do you have a picture in your attic? They say that to me, obviously. Uh, in fact, I don't have a picture in my attic. I have a hyacinth at the moment, which because at this time of year, which is late winter, I particularly like to have a hyacinth because I love the smell. And, you know, I think I said this before because we were referring to uh, The Wasteland. They call me the hyacinth boy. Yes, I remember saying that now. Okay, so going back to the story, this, this idea is it, a science fiction idea. It's a really good idea. And you forgive Oscar Wilde because he litters his stories with all these aphorisms and epigrams and these wise sayings and all these characters pretty much, their time saying pithy things you know uh, general observations on humanity um and and sometimes uh, i don't know if you notice some of his stories are please stay please stay, yes i'll stay and then they go you know and they're like oh well what, what happened then or sit down and stay with me oh yes we're going to the theater and off they go so there's some kind of discontinu- discontinuities in time but we can forgive him that i think for two things one um well for three things his writing is beautiful a lot of the things he says about humanity are probably spot on. It's two. Um, he he pens these characters that are compellingly awful, evil almost, but they compel us. That's three. And what's the fourth thing? Yeah, because he was brave enough to, uh, to be gay and go to jail for it, you know, in a time when that was not a thing. Okay, now we've got a special treat for you here because I have my daughter Imogen visiting. So I'm going to get her to come and start. It's not very often we have anybody interrupting my rambles, but Imogen's special, so here we go. Hello, viewers and listeners. Imogen here, popping on to say hello. Hope you enjoyed this part of the story. I read it in school for uh, my A-level, Gothic Horror. I chose to read it, but it was a long time ago now. But I just remember that the... uh, description of the of the portrait was really 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 gross really disgusting but it was a good story i liked it at the time because i quite like gothic gothic horror and then i read frankenstein as well and just all the classics but yeah hope you enjoyed uh just saying hello and also goodbye so we're just recording this before we head out on a very rainy winter night There'll be more Doreen Gray coming soon. Nice to have you here. Okay, goodbye.